what a blessed thought and what a grand occasion it is to be together today. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Those famous words of Paul in Philippians 4, verse 4. You and I do have the occasion today to leave behind us, for at least for a few moments, the distractions, the burdens, and the cares of the day, and to direct our attention to those things most divine, most spiritual, and holy, and by that, that we might in fact improve ourselves by letting Jesus operate and work through us. What a grand day it is for us at Pippin to come together to enjoy fellowship and to glorify the great name of God through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. For a couple of Sundays, counting today that is, we have invested some in time to study some characteristics of the church. In fact, last Lord's Day morning as we began that series of studies, we began so by reminding ourselves that the church is exceedingly important. So important, in fact, that it costs the life of the Son of God. Let's begin to continue that series of lessons today by asking a question that perhaps is one many will take to be contentional or controversial, but that is not the approach that you and I would wisely take toward it. It is a fair question. It is a question that is as honest and as sincere as one can imagine. It is not our intent to impose our opinions or our thoughts upon any person or any group. Our only interest and that eternal in character is to seek to better understand the nature of that blessed and divine body known as the church. And in that understanding, one exceedingly fair question is the one that I've posed upon the wall to my left. As over the next few moments, as you and I then ponder and think about the character of it, might I mention by way of introduction some of the following considerations. In the sense that the church is important, I suspect no person who has given any thought to it will question that fact. But what's more, as one ponders it, this series of lessons has intended for us to march deeply in the blessed throes of what God has revealed. We learned last Lord's Day morning what the church is. It is the body of Christ. It is the kingdom of God. It is that organization that houses the saved. A person who is saved is in the church. One who is not in the church then is not saved. To consider that simplistic presentation is only to present that which God has presented, isn't it? It wasn't our intent to define it by Webster's Dictionary. We also noted in the latter part of the lesson on that occasion that the church was spoken of in prophecy. It did not come about as simply an afterthought. God revealed in some detail the characteristics of when it would be established and what it would be like hundreds of years before it came to be. But as we march onward and forward in this series, the question, of course, that could well be presented is to ask, well, how many bodies known as the church are there? Might I submit to you that as we begin the lesson, let's try to pose the character of why that might be such a confusing question for many. But once we have better understood that nature, we will then open the blessed pages of Holy Writ and look therein and seek for God's answer. For after all, man's answer is immaterial. It is useless, if you will, for only God can define for us the character of how many churches there are. And so as we begin, consider the following thoughts with me with a remembrance of what we learned last Lord's Day. Consider some of these statistics. Some of these thoughts, how many churches are there? May I submit to you, 
And we each understand this perhaps far better than we would like. We know that currently Christianity in the world is in a state of mass confusion. And it has been for half a millennium. It is in such a state in which an honest and earnest and sincere seeker could well find him or herself in a position of asking the question, how many churches are there? So this individual may have learned then that the Bible speaks about an organization known as the church. This person has learned that this church is that which houses the saved. But yet as he or she drives down the roadway, there are various and sundry buildings with various and sundry names who each present themselves as the church. And all the while, the person might then ask, well, are they all alike? Is one as good as another? One of the most common presentations that you and I will hear if we watch much televangelism is that indeed one church is as good as another. And that person making that statement may firmly believe that with all his or her heart. But as we've often noted, what a person believes is not sufficient to save. Consider these statistics that paint a rather dim and bleak picture. If you look at those statistics, consider that the current denominational world is the very thing to which we're pointing. We live in an age in which denominationalism is accepted as a norm, and what's more, many will defend it wholeheartedly. That word denomination is a long word. It comes from that root verb, denominate, and that word simply means to name or to call. The word denomination however, has critical observation and meaning as it relates to a religious organization or religious sect that's called by a specific name. And thus, as one recognizes the denominational world, one is able then to see that the numbers are staggering. According to the two, 2001 record of the World Christian Encyclopedia, there are 635 recognized denominations in the United States of America. 635. However, worldwide, there are at least 9,000. And some even have the number as high as 33,800 denominations in Christendom worldwide. As one then turns back and recognizes the question, it is a fair question. I've got 635 to pick from in this land. I've got well over 10,000 to pick from worldwide. Is one as good as another? Are they all equal in the sight of God? If they are, we should, of course, know that fact. But if they aren't, we would then be ready to ask the question, well, which ones of the number are approved in heaven's sight? Which ones are pleasing and acceptable to the Almighty God of heaven? Perhaps another statistic that I chose not to list there for the sake of space is the fact that that number of denominations is increasing at the rate of five per week. Five new recognized Christian denominations every week. Worldwide, that's a staggering statistic. One can then appreciate that as one considers then the nature of the Lord's teaching on the church, this honest and sincere person could well then ask you and me, well, how many churches are there? Our task this morning will be to discuss the answer biblically to that question. I've listed some of the names with which we each are very familiar. You see them listed there. There are the various numbers recognized as Methodist and Episcopalian and Presbyterian and Baptist. 
Our interest today is not to insult or besmirch in any sense the sincerity and the faith of humble men and women. Our only interest is to ask, well, what is God's perspective? If you and I were able face to face to ask Jesus how many churches are there, what answer would he give? May I submit to you, we can find his answer for the Holy Word of God is his answer. Do we not notice then the blessed statements made by Jesus in John 12 verse 48? Jesus there said, He that rejecteth me and seeketh not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The fact is, the New Testament, as it presents these thoughts, challenges us evermore to understand that this is the word of Christ. It is the revelation of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus revealed by virtue of the Father to him. John 16, verse 13. The nature of the question runs deeper than what we have thus far discussed. To ask the question, how many churches are there, is immediately to pose the following problem. If all these churches believed, worshipped, practiced, and taught the same thing, it would be a moot answer. But the fact is, that is not the case. These various denominations, of which there are 635 in our land, they teach different things, they worship in different ways, they believe different doctrines, and they practice different things. That thus places a premium upon attempting them to answer it. If they teach and practice and worship and act in different ways, and often contradictory ways, it thus becomes logically the case that not all of them can be right. Isn't that true? If a child, a student in a mathematics classroom, two children, two students turn into the teacher sheets of paper with their answers on them. On those sheets of paper, the teacher has asked a question, two times three. One student answers five, one answers six. Are they both right? Are both answers correct? We understand that in matters of truth, in matters of doctrine, if answers are distinct, the following thing has to be true. Either one of them is right and one of them is wrong, or both of them are wrong. You cannot have different answers given to the same question involving truth and both of them be correct. As we thus reflect upon the fact that in the nature of denominationalism, things are taught that contradict each other. What one group says one has to be saved, another group says you do not have to do that. Either both of them are wrong or one of them is. What do we make of all of this? How many churches are there? As we move forward in considering these, may I submit to you that one of the things that you can read about is that there are many in the world of religion who defend denominationalism. In fact, they defend it with all the gusto and all the strength that they possess. They do so because in their view, the Lord bought one church, he purchased one, but all of them are just varieties and flavors and various types of that one church, and thus all are fine and acceptable. That's what some teach. Before the lesson's over today, we must revisit that. But for the time being, let's go ahead and give God's answer. It was read in our hearing a few moments ago. In fact, there are several lines of reasoning that one can consider that will all converge to the same answer. Consider some of the following thoughts with me. First, I have emphatically placed it there for our discussion and our remembrance. 
This is not Randy Bybee's presentation. The fact that there's one church is written in clear-cut language in the Word of God. Let's notice again how it appears. We learned last Lord's Day that the church is the body of Christ. We saw that in texts such as Colossians 1 verse 18. Let's revisit that one briefly. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And thus we have clearly stated for our discussion the fact that the church and the body are one and the same. The body and the church are equivalent one to the other. And thus to ask the question how many churches are there is the same as asking how many bodies are there. How many bodies are there? Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 4 gave us the answer to that question. After he had given three chapters of discussing the foundational base work of the nature of Christ in the body, he concluded by saying, beginning in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. A brief moment of reflection will convince us that one is exactly that. Paul said there's one body, and since the body and the church are the same, there's one church. Now there might be some who would say, well, one is just a symbolic number. One shouldn't read that literally. But notice the context must be our guide, at least to ultimately answer that thought. There were six other ones listed. We just noticed them. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, let's ask. So when the Bible says there's one Lord, is that a figurative way of saying there's 635? Is that a figurative way of saying there's 33,800? We easily see that in that context, one means one. Or what about how many Holy Spirits are there? Paul said there's one. How many gods are there? Paul said there's one. How many faiths are there? Paul said there's one. If one means one, literally the, the number one in all of them, then we must conclude that with respect to the number of bodies and hence the number of churches, he also meant there's one. We already have God's answer then to our question of the lesson today. There's one church. As we consider that though and think about its meaning, there are many things that we can appreciate so very firmly. That gives us a great insight as to how in all the New Testament it can so powerfully refer to the one body. As Paul did to the Romans in Romans 12 verses 4 and 5, he said that you are to be one body in Christ. That word one had great significance, didn't it? Because one meant that there is a unique entity to this body. In fact, isn't it true that the number one is the most unique of all numbers? If there's one of anything, it's absolutely unique. There's not another one like it. There's one church. As one contemplates the church, may we look at this from a different perspective. We know that our Savior purchased, bought it, so how many churches did he build? Back in Matthew 16, verse 18. On that occasion when Jesus addressed in response to Peter's confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto, me, unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, If thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And thus the very first occurrence of the word church in the New Testament is singular. Jesus said, I will build my church. He did not say churches. He gave no hint of a plurality or a multitude of bodies. He said, there will be one church and I shall build it. Later in Acts 20, verse 28, when Paul addressed those elders from the church in Ephesus, he again made reference to one body when he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the church over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. In instances such as those, we can then see the usage and applicability of one church, one body, and doesn't that bring a smile to our face? We aren't left to the confusion of ourselves to answer this question. God has answered it. There's one church. But just as surely as we understand the character of that answer, that leads us back, though, to that issue we raised earlier. What then do we make of the 635 denominations, this or series of organizations that refer to themselves as the church? Can that be defended from the, from the Bible? Is it true that God approves of all of them, but that each just give men the opportunity to choose the one that's their favorite? In fact, in the mind of some, it's much like entering an ice cream shop. You have all kinds of flavors from which to pick, and you just choose the one you like the best. Is that the viewpoint that heaven takes toward denominationalism? Are all the churches indeed fine with God and just gives me and the opportunity to pick the one they like the best? Well, we've noted there's one church, one body. Let's study a little deeper in the New Testament and note what is true and characteristic of that church, and then we'll have our answer to denominationalism completely. As we begin to study that, consider the following set of ideas with me, if you would. The characteristic, then, of the soda or ice cream shop with respect to the church, as we shall soon see, is absolutely unscriptural. One cannot find any defense whatsoever of that in the New Testament. One will search in vain to characterize the church as a series of bodies that are not identical and men have the choices to pick the one they like. In fact, with regard to that which they defend, we understand the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and truth is singular. There are not many truths. With regard to all spiritual information, it is housed in the New Testament in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what was it that Paul wrote to the Galatians concerning the gospel in Galatians 1, verses 89? How many gospels are there? A moment ago, as we discussed the seven unities extending from the body all the way to God, notice in Galatians 1, verses 89, there's a very sincere truth that can well be noted in addition. How many gospels are there? We can answer with loud voices and ecstatic ones at that. There's one gospel because Paul said, If any man teach or preach any other gospel than that which we have delivered unto you, let him be accursed. There is one gospel. It's that precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Earlier in our time of communion today, we noted that that was made mention of in Romans 1 verse 16. What is it then that Paul preached at Rome? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And thus there is the contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness. Righteousness found in the gospel, unrighteousness anywhere else. Isn't that a strong statement? Isn't that a powerful conclusion? And thus, if the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, we have thus learned something very basic and fundamental. The church must then follow this identically. It is not left its own devices. And hence, any organization that does not follow word for word and absolutely thus saith the Lord cannot possibly be the church. It's that simple. The recognition then that rests upon you and me is to understand that truth never contradicts itself, ever. For if anything contradicts itself, one part of it must be wrong. Nowhere in all the sacred word of God are there any discrepancies, errors, contradictions, and hence only that body, that group of Christians, is the church that follows it identically and seeks, for thus saith the Lord, for all matters of authority which they espouse, teach, believe, and worship with. To recognize that point is to recognize one of the most basic elements of Bible authority. The number of churches, only one. And that church is the one that follows the word of God completely for the sole role and practice of all that they believe, do, teach, and use as doctrine. No thing of men can be incorporated. No idea, no counsel, no delegation, no usage or capability of men as authoritative must be a part of it. For if so, it cannot be. It cannot be the church of our Lord. Isn't it amazing to see then that the church is a very exclusive group and that's not being a bad thing. That's the way the Lord designed it. That's the way the apostles taught it. Look at these other texts that teach us furthermore about these ideas in terms of unity. This, to this point we've noted the characteristic that there is one church, one body. To see D more deeply the characteristic of that unity that must be present, and more deeply the characteristic of how that church does not teach and practice and worship in different ways, I would ask you to reflect with me upon Paul's writings to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10, at the very outset of that noble 16-chapter book, Paul had in mind the characteristic of divisions that existed in the church in Corinth. As he dealt with that matter, he wasted no time in reaching the ultimate conclusion and rebuke of them when he said in verse 10 of chapter 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now listen to him. Today in our world of denominationalism, groups teach and practice and believe different things, but Paul said you must be of the same mind, of the same judgment, there must be no divisions, and you must speak the same thing. Could that possibly be descriptive of the modern world of denominationalism? Could that possibly be an appropriate description of what we see today? The answer is self-evident. The answer speaks for itself. To those in Corinth, Paul challenged them that they were to recognize the fact they should speak the same thing. 
in matters of religion, in those things of which the Lord has taught, they were to be united. There should be a common plan of salvation they teach, to give respect and honor to a common Lord, to teach a common unified baptism for salvation. That was to be understood. And yet today, as we recognize the world in which we live, there are some groups who don't even think you need to be baptized to be saved. Other groups think it doesn't matter what church you belong to as long as you belong to something. Other groups feel as though you take the Lord's Supper about once a year and that's enough. While others think it must be once a month. Others once a week. That doesn't sound like they're speaking the same thing. But Paul said there must be no divisions among you. To state that a different way, no schisms in the body. The body is a unified and blessed thing. Jesus died for that body. It is to be unified in every respect. They are to speak the same thing and that there should be no schisms, no divisions, no splits, no divisiveness in the body. Later, as Paul would expand that discussion and elaborate upon it to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he would make reference to the physical body. And he would phrase it this way. What if the hand would say, I'm not of the eye? Or what if the foot should say, I'm not of the hand? Paul thus led us to note that in a body, all the parts work the same in the same body. They're not fighting against each other. They're not teaching and doing different things. And so too it is the body of Christ. The body members are to work together, not teaching and worshiping in different ways, going in different directions, heading in different destinies. The thought then that Paul has presented is a very deep one, but he isn't done. There's two more things to go in verse 10. As he nears his conclusion, notice also he said of the same judgment. You and I understand that when we provide judgment, we thus are drawing conclusions about some activity or some circumstance based on evidence that we are utilizing. Paul said to the Corinthians, you must be of the same judgment. Could that describe the modern world of denominationalism? Suppose you ask this group, what do I need to do to be saved? And you ask this group and get a different answer. Is their judgment the same? Are they providing based on what they appreciate answers in accordance to the Word of God? And again, the answer speaks for itself. But notice he closes that verse by saying, perfectly joined together in the same mind. Perfectly joined together in the same mind. That adverb perfectly means totally, completely. Nothing left out. And thus, Paul urges the Corinthians to be unified in such a total, whole, and complete sense that they could literally be spoken of as spiritually employing or working with the same mind. You and I understand there is no way that describes modern denominationalism. Do modern denominations fellowship each other? Do they enjoy communion with one another? Could they thus be said to be of one mind? Well, of course not. They're distinct. They're different. They teach different things. They, in fact, teach different plans of salvation, different modes of doctrine, different ideas of worship. To reflect then upon denominationalism is to notice then that this text regarding the Corinthians is exceedingly strong. Later in chapter 10, verse 12, Paul would in fact readdress the matter of unity and here notice what he said. 
specifically as he made reference in chapters 10, 11, and 12. He arrives at verse 13 of chapter 12 and says, You have been baptized into one body. One body. Every aspect of that sentence now makes sense. No wonder he used the word singular as it related to body. There's only one of them. Ephesians 4 verse 4. And how does one enter that one body? How does one become a member of that one church? Paul said, by inspiration, that one is baptized into it. One does not join it. One does not provide some evidence and then vote it in. One is baptized into it. What would we make then of those denominational groups that do not even think baptism is essential? Who do not even think that baptism is necessary? Apparently, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 has a different meaning to them. Apparently, they take it far less than the inspired meaning provided to it. We're beginning to see very deeply the thrust of the point, don't we? Jesus said there's one body, one church. And we there should seek to that person who might ask us, we tell them, God has given the pattern for his church in this book. When you find the body of believers who do and practice and say exactly what this says, you have found the church. They must not rely on human doctrines, creeds, ideas, or mentalities. This is the creed for the church, and no more and no less. And when we see the characteristic then that there's one church, doesn't that lead us all the way back to some of the final words that Jesus spoke in his life while he was in the flesh? On that night prior to his crucifixion, as he anguished in the Garden of Gethsemane, we will remember in John 17 the most beautiful prayer ever, ever uttered. Our Savior was in the throes of agony as he knew what lay ahead of him in less than 12 hours. On that occasion, he prayed for those apostles. He prayed that they might have the strength and fortitude to share the gospel and be faithful always to it. But then in his prayer, he turned to somebody else. Who else did the Lord mention? In verses 20 and 21, not only did Jesus pray for those apostles, he prayed for you and he prayed for me. Isn't that amazing? Our Savior, the blessed Son of God, who was shortly to be crucified, prayed for you and for me. And here's how he stated that prayer. Neither pray I for these alone, the these there referring to the apostles, but he said, also pray for all of them also that shall believe on me through their word. Jesus prayed for all people who would believe upon him through the word of those apostles, that word being written and recorded by inspiration for you and me. But notice verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thou, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed that in recognition of the fact there's one body. He prayed in recognition of the fact that all of those everywhere who believe on me will be one as totally and as completely as he was one with his Father. Is it possible to imagine that God would teach, believe, and practice one thing and Jesus teach, believe, and practice something else and that somehow they could still be called one? Well, of course not. It's ludicrous, isn't it? It's absurd. And yet all believers, Jesus prayed, in all of Christianity would be one, 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 just as completely and totally as he's one with his Father. There is one body. There is indeed one church. 
And you and I can be so thankful that we have within the confines and pages of the New Testament how that church is described. So that we can know when we found it. So we can know, in fact, and understand what it takes to be a part of it. And to rejoice eternally in the fact that it does exist. We can be so thankful that there are faithful congregations who uphold the blessed light of the gospel of Christ. Congregations such as the Peeping Church of Christ. Those who believe and recognize the beauty and glory of how the church is described and the fact that there is one church. As we continue on with this series of lessons, there's going to be many more interesting questions that we'll need to ask and answer. This afternoon or this evening when we come back, just as a foretaste of it, our thrust will be a consideration of the name. What about the name? Come back tonight as we study that, but for at this point in time, what about your life and mine? Are you a member of the body of the saved? Are you a member of the church? There is but one of them. Were you baptized into it by faith for the remission of sins? That's the means by which it's entered, Acts 2.38. If you have done that, you know that the Lord washed your sins away and that you are a born-again Christian. As such, you walk in fellowship and communion with the God of heaven. You know how glorious and good that is. However, if you have become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful to that calling, you haven't lived up to that beautiful vocation and the worthiness of that name, Colossians 1 verse 10, then this would be a beautiful time. In fact, such a convenient one. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Today is the day of salvation. There could never be a better time to obey the gospel than now. A hymn of encouragement has been chosen by Brother Harold, and if there's one or more in the audience who needs to respond in faith, don't let the nervousness or anxiety turn you aside. That's only Satan's attempt to make you wait another day, and perhaps to wait for a day that will never come. We are not promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, Proverbs 27.1. If you need to respond today, let today be the day, the 14th of January, 2007. If we could assist you in your acts of confession and baptism, or if we could be of aid to you in praying on your behalf, let us help you. Let us do that today while together we stand and while we sing.